The scripture reading this morning, Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 32. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality and, so, and as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you have heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on a new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been, he who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work. Do something useful with his hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ just as in Christ, God forgave you. Grace and peace to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you again for joining us for worship today. There are several marriage texts in the Bible, uh, but there are a lot of texts that are about relationships in general, which I have found very helpful to think about in terms of our marriages. Now, if, if you're here and you're single, uh, if you're in a situation where you're not married today, I don't want you to tune this out at all. All these principles that we're talking about today, they're going to apply to your friendships, to your other family relationships, to other relationships in your life. Uh, you, the same thing will apply there, but specifically I do want to talk about applying these principles to your marriage today for those of you who are married. Ephesians chapter 5 is one of those marriage texts that we have in the scriptures, but I find it helpful if you see, if you follow the book of Ephesians all the way up to this point in chapter 5, by the time you get to chapter 5, you will see these principles that lead into the discussion about husbands and wives in chapter 5. We will get a lot more out of that if we have spent some time in those words before that. For this reason, I've chosen Ephesians chapter 4 today as one of those texts. We've done this in the past with 1 Corinthians 13, other texts of the Bible. I think it's a good period 
periodically to talk about how to apply this language about how to get the most out of relationships. Apply it specifically to our marriages and to think about that. Our marriages, they need constant maintenance, constant encouragement, constant devotion, more devotion to God and to each other. It's a work in progress all the time. And so let's back up before we get to Ephesians 5, and we'll be pulling a few things out of Ephesians 5 today, but we're going to focus on what Ephesians 4 can tell us about our relationships. I've found that couples, when we do premarital counseling, and when I've had the chance to do that, we spend some time with Ephesians 5, which talks about the roles that you take on in marriage, but I found it very helpful to back up a little bit and talk about some of the things that you're going to find in Ephesians 4, which will help in the establishment of your relationship with each other. Five principles today that I've pulled out of this. I know there's a lot that we can talk about, but five specifically that I want to spend a little time with today. And here's principle number one, and that is view your marriage as a mutual walk with the Lord. View your marriage as a mutual walk with the Lord. Here's what we mean by that and why I use the word walk. This text uses the word walk repeatedly. You're going to see it at the beginning of our reading here from verses 17 through 19. The walk in this context, and again, this is for all Christians, but let's think about this if you are married today of how this could apply to you. The first principle about your walk is that it is no longer a pagan walk. It's no longer a worldly walk. Uh, You are different than that. That's how you used to walk, but it's no longer defined uh, by lusts. It's no longer defined by the futility of your mind and the things that we used to uh, focus so much on. It's the first principle right here. That's a dark road. This is a pure road that's in contrast uh, with that. If you go on down even into chapter 5 and you trace the word walk, it's going to show up again. And this time it says that it is a walk that's characterized by love and not just any love. The love of Jesus Christ himself who gave himself up as a sacrifice. So it's a sacrificial love. Now that's going to lead into the discussion in Ephesians 5 about especially the love that husbands are to have for their wives. It's to be modeled after Jesus Christ's love for the church. To love her enough to give himself up for her. It's a sacrificial love. Our walk is characterized by that. If you go down to verses 15 through 17, our walk is characterized by wisdom. There is wisdom that's associated with this, of understanding what the will of God is and making the most of our time. When you go for a walk with someone, what are you doing? Well, number one, you're exercising. You're getting some blood flowing. You know, you're, you're, you're exercising the body that God has given you. It's good for your health. But if you go for a walk with someone, and I chose a picture here of a couple that's holding hands, you're spending quality time together. I think it's one of the most important things. I know that when Miranda and I, when we first got to our honeymoon destination, first thing we did is go take a walk on the beach. You know, it's a special time uh, together that you get to spend. You're close. You may even hold hands together. And the other thing is, you're usually going somewhere. Even if you're just going around the block, you're seeing things. You're not just on a treadmill. You're going somewhere. You're actually moving. You have a destination in mind. There's a point where you are headed. I think that this is part of why the Bible uses the word walk so much. Because we are meant to apply it for you personally in your relationship with God. But I want us to think, because I think this passage is getting us to think. If you trace this all the way 
way through chapters 4 and chapter 5 to get the most out of your marriage. I want you to view yourself as, as on, picture yourself as on that walk. And if you're holding hands, picture the Lord Jesus as at that point where you are clasping hands together. He is with you. It takes three to have a marriage, truly, biblically. It does. Your walk is in the Lord. That is how you are going to grow closer to each other, how you're going to have quality time together. Marriage takes practice. It takes exercise. There is movement. And it has a destination. If you read what Ephesians 5 is going to say about marriage, it's that marriage is one of the ways that we proclaim the gospel. It's one of the ways that we show the love, the same type of love that Jesus had for the church, is a love that should be conveyed in your marriage. That is its purpose. That is its destination. So it's not just about growing closer to each other. It's about growing closer to each other in the Lord, in Jesus. You grow closer to each other as you're growing closer to Jesus Christ. As you go deeper into who He is, you are learning what it means. You are sharpening each other. And a part of our marriage vows that we, we chose for Miranda and myself, where may I sharpen you as, as iron sharpens iron. May, may you sharpen me as iron sharpens iron. Something to that effect we were promising to each other, drawing from the Proverbs. That's part of why we are in this. It's to get closer to God together. We are helping each other become the new self that verse 24 describes in this text and to learn Christ what verse 20 describes in this text I know that from my experience my wife brings me closer to Jesus Christ I learn Christ through her and through Jesus Christ I learn more what it means to love her what it means to sacrifice for her what it means for us to have closeness all this is connected it's a mutual walk a three way walk with the Lord That's how I want you to picture your marriage today. The second principle is this. Speak truth. Now again, these apply to all of our relationships. But if you look closely at this text that we have, verses 24, 25, I'm going to read this one more time. Put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Righteousness is right living. Righteousness in Jesus is His perfection now being implemented into your life. Even though you are not perfect, you are learning to walk and to live as He lives. Righteousness and holiness, that means the, the otherness, the, the sanctification of your marriage. Righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Now again, broad principles here, talking specifically about one Christian to another Christian. We speak truth with each other. Why? Because we are fellow members of one another. Now, if that language is applied to all of us who are in fellowship with each other in the body of Christ, and it's important, how much more should that be applied to your own marriage, that language of being members one of another. Isn't that what marriage is? 1 Corinthians 6, you become one flesh, one body with the one whom you choose to marry. You are members one of another. Your marriage should be built around honesty, around truth. There should be no room for falsehood that is there. Secret 
bank accounts, secret spending, secret addictions, secret pornography use, secret substance use, secret flirtation with co-workers, secret resentments that should be expressed, all of these things. These are the types of things that will destroy your marriage. It's some of the main things that will, at least for your part. You can't control the behavior of your spouse. But for your part, be honest. Try to do your part to create a culture of honesty where truth is at the forefront of your marriage and therefore trust will be there as well. The third principle that you see from this this text. Again, true for all relationships. Let's apply it to marriage. Handle anger appropriately. This is one of the toughest topics that we deal with as human beings And the Bible addresses it. This is one of the great texts in the whole Bible that addresses how to handle anger. When it comes to anger and to marriage, there's really two types that we could be talking about. We could be talking about general anger that could have a number of different causes, a number of different reasons why you feel angry. It's not something that's specifically about your spouse. But then there's also anger that is directed toward your spouse from something that your spouse, in your mind at least, as you have perceived, that they have done, that has angered you. Or maybe it's an ongoing issue, something about them that gets under your skin, something that is bugging you, something that is pushing you towards anger. Now sometimes even general anger that you feel can end up being directed toward a spouse, even if they're not the cause of that anger. I believe this is what psychologists would call either displacement or transference. Uh, An example of that would be, you know, someone's at work and his boss pushes him around and he resents his job and he hates his boss, but he won't have the courage to tell his boss off because he would lose his job. So he comes home and he yells at his wife instead. He takes that anger and he transfers it. He, He pushes it all on her. He starts to blame her for everything that's wrong in his life. This can happen in a marriage too, something that we have to be very careful about. Since we're speaking about truth here, let's be honest. You are going to feel angry in any relationship if you give it long enough. And you are going to feel anger in a marriage. This is just being honest. The only way to avoid that, in my opinion, is to completely avoid each other. And to completely avoid spending time with each other so that you don't really know each other. Because there's going to come situations that are going to bother you about the other person. This is part of any relationship. It's part of marriage. Now, one of the important things that we're going to see here that this text tells us, it's going to tell us four things about anger. Here's the first one. Be angry. Now, what do you mean be angry? (laughs) I think part of what he's telling us here is that the feelings of anger themselves are not sinful. Anger is a part of the human experience. And in and of itself, there is nothing intrinsically wrong or sinful about feeling anger. If you doubt that, look at what some of the Gospels say about Jesus. There are times when it explicitly says that he looks at someone and felt anger because of something that they had done. Okay, so anger itself cannot be sinful. However, as Jesus warns us about anger that's in our hearts with a a brother of any kind, it can definitely set us up for temptation 
for sin. That's why the next instruction here is do not sin. Be angry, but do not sin. Anger, if we recognize it, then we should also recognize ourselves as susceptible to sin if we don't handle it carefully. Now, how could that come across in a marriage? Some of the ways that it could, could come across through physical abuse, sometimes maybe even through verbal abuse, emotional abuse, or maybe even some other vindictive behavior toward your spouse, withholding something from them, ignoring them, doing something else that is an expression of your anger that is meant to hurt your spouse in some way. So how do we handle anger if we're not going to handle it sinfully? Well, the text tells us here, do not let the sun go down on your anger. This is really important, especially when it comes to a marriage. Sometimes this is harder to do in a friendship because you don't live in the same house. You live in the same house with your spouse. And I know it's not easy, but it is, you're not going to go to bed well if you both get in that bed and you have anger towards each other. And I'm not saying everything's always completely resolved in one day or through one conversation. But the principle here is this. You need to try to address it. If it's something that you are feeling towards your spouse at all, the feeling is not wrong. But part of what becomes wrong is when you hold on to the feeling and it becomes resentment and it can turn into something of a bitterness that can last long term if you don't keep it in check and you don't address it. It's, it's like something that's meant to hold steam and, and there's pressure that is there. This is how anger can work within us. And if you don't vent that steam, you ever have instructions if you're cooking something, tell you to vent it a little bit? Because if you don't, what's going to happen? It's going to blow up eventually. We need to have healthy ways to vent the steam. Venting is not always yelling. Okay, it's not always expressing anger in, in, in ways that we often see the world expressing anger, but it is in a loving, as loving a way as possible and as honest a way as possible and as gentle a way as possible, still getting that anger out. Now, I know that if you struggle with managing anger, we're not going to be able to cover everything about that in this lesson. Maybe you need to talk with a therapist about that. This is a common human problem. Uh, it's related to a lot of the things that we experience. When it comes to a relationship with a spouse, it's so easy to hold it in and then it all comes out at once. And when it comes out, it can come out in violent ways. It can come out in ways where we say things that we're going to regret later on. It can come out in ways where we're pulling up stuff that happened years ago and stuff that we haven't even talked about. Resentments that we've held on to. We've got to be very careful about that. Part of the benefit of this, it goes along with speaking truth with your spouse, is you establish a deeper trust with your spouse. When you express that you're angry about something, I know that was, if my wife talks with me about something that I have done that's hurt her, it, it, it shows me that she's confident enough in our relationship that we can talk about this and that she can express that to me. It shows trust, it builds trust that you can handle a difficult situation with your spouse about something that's upset you. 
And here's the fourth thing that this text tells us about anger. It says, do not let give the devil an opportunity. This goes back to do not sin and do not let the sun go down in your anger. If you hold on to the anger, if you don't express it, if you don't handle it properly, if you let the sun go down on it, then you are just giving the devil an opportunity. And boy, this is the one of the main ways he will grab hold of us and he will destroy both us and hurt the people around us. Satan will seize that opportunity. Sometimes it comes in you just distancing yourself from your spouse, not spending time with your spouse. That's giving the devil an opportunity because you know what? When you start distancing yourself from your spouse, you're going to find other things that become your lovers. I'm not just talking about people, but it may be that you retreat into your video games or you retreat into a hobby that you enjoy or you retreat into something else that ends up taking the place of your spouse in your life because you didn't handle your anger with your spouse properly in the first place. That's one of the ways it comes across. Maybe it's a substance that you end up turning to because you're not dealing with anger in proper ways. One of the most tempting things to do when you feel anger toward your spouse when you're upset with your spouse is to call someone else and to slander your spouse. You may call a family member. You may call your mom or your dad or your brother or sister or maybe even a friend and you just tell them how awful your spouse is and you haven't even talked to your spouse about it yet. Some couples will even badmouth a spouse in front of their kids. One of the most damaging things you can do in your home. But it happens all the time if we're not careful. Be careful. The devil is looking for ways to get into your home. And this is one of the main ways we can be guilty of giving the devil an opportunity is when we don't handle anger appropriately. Apply this text to your marriage. Apply it to your home. Verse 31 of this text tells us some of the things that need to end if you are becoming the new self in Jesus Christ. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, which is basically anger expressed in loud noises, <laughs> malice, it's ill intent, it comes from anger, it, it's, it's the desire to either get even or, or do something that's hurtful to someone else, it could definitely play out in a marriage. Those things need to end. You look at the previous verse, these are the types of things that grieve the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, your home should be a sanctuary for the Holy Spirit if you are, are in Christ. It grieves the Spirit when these things divide you. You're giving the devil an opportunity. Beware. Principle four. Use wholesome, encouraging words. One of Gary Chapman's five love languages is words of affirmation. And I think over time uh, I've realized this is one of the main ways that I feel love from a spouse. The world beats us up enough with their words, don't, don't they? Your workplace, <laughs> Facebook, <laughs> any other interactions with human beings, they beat us up enough. The last thing that we need is to be beat up by words from our spouse. Now, that's different than actually addressing something that's a real issue in a loving way with your spouse. I'm talking about demeaning your spouse, belittling your spouse through your words. It's really a sign that you don't feel strong enough about yourself. It's, the, it's bully tactics 
that can play out in a marriage. It's the classic what, what, why someone bullies another kid is because they don't feel strong enough about themselves. They have to push someone else down so that they feel better. So maybe in a marriage, someone's trying to get the upper hand by belittling the other person, making them feel like they're the dumb one or that they're the one who doesn't make as much money or whatever else, that their work is not as important, however else that plays out. Here's three things that this tells us specifically about our words in verse 29. They should be wholesome. They should be pure. Now, there's no place for impure language really anywhere in your life, but especially in your home. Pure speech that's wholesome. And it says specifically words that are good for edification. You know what that word means? It means to build a house. Edify means to build a house, specifically. If you think about that in your home, your words will build your home. They will be a huge part of what builds up your home. Or if they're not, they will tear down your home. That's the alternative. Your words should be good for edification in the church as a whole, in all your relationships. Specifically today, if you're married, they should definitely be that way in your home. Build up your home through your words. And they should be grace-giving. They should be characterized by grace. Colossians 4 uses very similar language. When it says that your speech is to be an expression of grace. It's God's grace flowing through you. It should be a gift, the words that you leave, not only with your spouse, with your children, with your friends, with your neighbors, with your coworkers. It should, should leave grace. As Colossians 4 says, it should be seasoned with salt. No, that doesn't mean that they're to be salty, as we use that expression. It means that they should leave a good taste, that salt in the sense of preserving and of, of adding flavor and of healing all those good uses of salt. That's, that should be coming from your speech. It should have a healing effect. Use your words for good. We need that. Build up your house with your words. And the last principle here that I think you can definitely apply to your home, build a home around kindness and forgiveness. Look at verse 32 again with me. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. Okay, that's the opposite of a hard heart. A hard heart that gets closed off to someone. A stubborn heart. A heart that would label your spouse as no good or forever hold something against your spouse and refuse to work with your spouse. That, that's not who we are as Christians in general. That's definitely not who we are in our home. There's a kindness. There's a tenderheartedness. And there's an atmosphere where we forgive each other. And look at what it connects to. Just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Jesus connects the same thing at the end of his model prayer. If you expect forgiveness from God and you need forgiveness from God, you better be willing to turn around and show it to others. That's part of what it means, one of the many things it means for your words to be seasoned with grace, for them to give grace. Forgive each other. Develop that as a culture in your home. It's not about keeping score. It's not about how many times you've been in the wrong and I've been in the wrong and who's got the upper hand because of it. A marriage will not last if that is the case. Grace includes forgiveness when mistakes are made. And when the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, 
Apply that text to your marriage. That means two things. Number one, your spouse has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Your spouse will make mistakes. That's part of learning to adjust to each other in marriage. The second thing it means is you also have made mistakes. You also have flaws. You will need forgiveness from your spouse. Just learn to see as you adjust to each other over time. And again, this is a lifelong process. That's why you walk with each other. You're on a walk together. You're adjusting to each other. It takes practice. You're walking with the Lord. And if you're walking with the Lord, learn to see those mistakes that are made through the cross of Jesus. They've been paid for. You can move forward and not continue to hold those things against your spouse. I'm convinced... If you and your spouse spend enough time in Ephesians chapter 4, then you will find the roles of Ephesians chapter 5 much easier to carry out. Because those principles of love and submission that are talked about more specifically in your roles as husband and wife that we read in Ephesians chapter 5, they're really just an extension of the teachings that we already see here that are applied to all Christians. Marriage is a microcosm of who we are to be becoming in all of our relationships, but it's amplified, of course. It is the most important human relationship that we're going to have here. So treasure it. Make the most of your time. Use it wisely. Become a Christ-centered home. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for today, for your love for us, for the new self that you have created us to be in Christ Jesus. May we be able to walk with you, all of us, and may our relationships be built on that walk with you. We pray for those of us who are married today specifically that we can take these principles that are meant to apply to all Christians but apply them to our marriages as well. We pray that we can speak truth. We pray that we can handle anger appropriately. We pray that we can be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving of each other, that we may not grieve your Holy Spirit in our homes. And we pray, Father, that uh, we will handle every aspect of our marriage as you intend. And in our friendships, and in the people that we meet, even outside the body of Christ. May we treat them with love. May we treat them with respect. May we learn to use the words and the actions that Jesus himself would use. We thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today, if you're struggling with something in your life that we can pray about on your behalf, we're going to sing a song of encouragement today. And if you have a need, you can share that with us. If, if you're here and you're not sure that you're in Christ, the Bible speaks about how we have assurance of that by faith in the working of God when we are joined together with Him in baptism. Uh, that all comes together, our, our confession of Jesus as Lord, our, our repentance of sins where we want to make a commitment to God, a new commitment to walk in the direction that he has for us. We want to take on that new walk in the light as he is in the light. When baptism, all that comes together because that's where we meet Jesus. If we've truly put our faith in, in Jesus Christ, then in that moment we find that we are washed in his blood. We receive forgiveness of our sins. We receive the gift of his Holy Spirit. And we rise anew to walk in newness of life. 
If you need that or if you need to talk about anything else today, won't you come as together we stand and as we sing.